would ask you to turn in your Bibles once again to the book of 2 Corinthians. We come to the 7th chapter this morning. It's clear among all of the churches that Paul wrote letters to, it's this Corinthian church that bears witness to tension and troubles and um, difficulties uh, in the way in which Paul himself as a servant of Christ, as an apostle, uh, was received. It's not so much the message. They seem to have gotten the message right, at least in terms of much of what is involved in the reality of a Christ crucified. There were some in the church that, of course, were had troubles with the resurrection, but, but yet there were those who um, aligned themselves with preachers. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. And it's interesting, you don't see that happening in any of the other churches. You don't see them. Paul writes to the Philippians, there was some question about his apostolic authority, or you don't see that in the writings to the Thessalonians that there were some questions about his apostolic authority. Um, even in Galatians, it wasn't really a, a charge against his apostolic authority. It was these people that came and told the people that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Whatever extent that there was suspicions about Paul, we don't seem to um, we don't seem to see that that's in fact the case. But here in the Corinthian letter, that does seem to uh, be the case that there were uh, uh, people and uh, they were uh, parties that were suspicious about Paul, suspicious about his motives. Why did he come back when he said he would? Why did he? Um, um, why does he seem to be so powerful in his letters, but yet in his presence he seems so weak? And never, all kinds of things were said about him that uh, Paul is uh, uh, concerned uh, not so much to justify his every move, but to win the people back to himself. And um, why would it be that it's this letter of all the letters, from what we just know in general about the churches, if you can maybe think of the book of Acts, Think about the things that happened in Thessalonica, things that happened in uh, Philippi, versus the things that happened in Corinth. Can can you think of any difference that might be um, uh, that might be? I think it's clearly there uh, between the Corinthian situation and the situation in these other churches. Anybody have a clue where I'm going with this? If not, that's okay. Um, What happened in uh, Philippi? When Paul came there, it was uh, he went by, by a riverside, uh, saw a bunch of women meeting for a prayer meeting. He spoke God's word, and God opened up the heart of Lydia. She came to believe. There was that matter with the um, demon-possessed woman who had that python spirit. And then we have uh, the arrest. Paul's imprisoned. And it's imprisoned that, uh, of course, God brings an earthquake about and brings something of a moral miracle about and then the fact that the prisoners didn't flee and the Philippian jailer is convicted of his sins, cry out, what what must I do to be saved? And so the church is founded in the midst of persecution. I mean, right away, persecution is what falls upon the church. And then we read in chapter 17 of the book of Acts that Paul moved on from from, uh, Philippi uh, to Berea where he met some people there who um, were noble in spirit. And maybe you should turn to chapter 17. And you see this is uh, borne out. Chapter 16 is his uh, 
experience in uh, Philippi, uh, the word of God coming in the midst of affliction and persecution. In fact, the, the letter, uh, chapter 1, uh, opens with that. Uh, it's been given to you on behalf of Christ, uh, not only to suffer with him, but also to believe on his name. This is a people that experienced a great amount of suffering for the sake of the gospel. It was given to them to suffer as well as to believe in his name. And uh, now in uh, Thessalonica, I'm sorry, did I, say, I said Maria came first? No. Thessalonica comes right after Philippi. And then we read that uh, Paul went in, verse 2. His custom was on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd when they could not find him. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And their brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Persecution. Conflict. Government authorities. Jealous Jews all looking to attack them. And so Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians in uh, chapter 1, he says that um, you receive the word with affliction as well as joy in the Holy Spirit. The word was received in affliction. When you come to Corinth in chapter 18, we see that there was some measure of trouble, at least at the beginning. Um, in verse uh, chapter 18 and verse 6 says that uh, uh, Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I am many in the city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. He stayed there much longer than he stayed in Philippi or Thessalonica, or anywhere else, really. A year and six months, or well, three years, uh, he was at Ephesus. Uh, but the point is that uh, God said that there would be those who would seek to harm you. Um, I'm sorry, no one will attack to harm you, for I am with you, for I am with you. So whatever they would seek to do, and some of them tried to do uh, certain things, uh, there was an attack in verse 12, when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, uh, the Jews made an attack, a united attack on Paul, brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God uh, contrary to the law. Now remember, back in the Thessalonica, the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. What happens when they come through Ga- to, before Gallio? Um, well, Gallio just says, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I'd have reason to accept your complaint, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, uh, see to yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Oh, Gallio's attitude? Indifference. Complete indifference. These are religious controversies among the Jews. It's not gonna, he's, he's not going to interfere. 
He's not going to get involved. Settle it yourselves. He drove them from the tribunal and then they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. I know the old uh, reading of the King James brought a lot of preachers to say that Galileo cared for none of these things, meaning he didn't care about the gospel. No, Galileo didn't care about religious controversies that were going on in his city. He was going to take a hands-off policy with respect to that. And so um, that gave Paul a great ability to minister with freedom. The city authorities were not enraged enraged against them. The Jews probably realized, well, we're not getting much satisfaction from, from the authorities if we continue this persecution. So it doesn't indicate, there's not any indication in the Corinthian correspondence that persecution was a particular problem in the church in Corinth. So where am I going with all this? Well, it seems to me that persecution becomes an agent in God's own purpose and plan with his people that actually does lead to their spiritual good, to their sanctification. It leads to their coming to a greater dependence upon the Lord and his servants. Um, they're united together in, perse- in, in the persecuting zeal of people against the gospel. And so there's a greater bond that's forged between Paul and the Philippians. There's a greater bond that's forged between Paul and the Thessalonians as a result of these instances of persecution that we read about in the book of Acts. Corinth didn't have that kind of persecution. And though Paul spent more time among them than he spent with any other of the churches, it, it appears that there was a segment of the church that had that bond. Some say, I am of Paul. But then there were others that said, hey, who needs Paul? Well, we got Apollos who came after him, and he's a far greater preacher. There, was, there wasn't a bond that was formed, forged in the midst of persecution and, 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 and tribulation. Now, sometimes we think that persecution is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to the church. And we'll do anything and everything to avoid it. And then the reality is that in places where persecution has come, the church is far more pure than it is in places where we have enfranchised religious liberty to gather and our fear of molestation. Um, And we tend to be taking it for granted and we tend to be flabby Christians in our spiritual walk before the Lord. And you see our brothers and sisters in China and other nations and just how much further along they are just in simple dependence upon God and His grace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's that connection that Paul gives between um, affliction and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's a reality that God's people learn to place their confidence and their joys not in the things of the world, but in the things of God. And they're able to experience a great deal of greater joy. The Corinthians, uh, they don't seem to have that too much time on their hands and so they learn how to complain and they learn how to fight with one another and they learn how to forge divisions within the church um, and persecution hasn't yet come to purify uh, the church um, and to bring a, a greater bond of the congregation with one another and with their apostle and so you know, Paul has certain disadvantages with regard to the Corinthians just because there's just so much differences of opinion, so much division, so much um, uh, lack of a sense of cohesion within the church. And uh, cohesion not only with one another, 
the cohesion with their apostle, their authorized uh, sent one of the Lord Jesus who comes with distinct apostolic authority. And so much of Paul's letter is spent not just looking to bring them to um, unity of the gospel, but also to bring them to unity with himself because he is their apostle. And that means authority. That means uh, their, their safety was uh, not in giving ear to other kinds of teachers. Let's choose which kind of teachers we like best and uh, follow them. The path of their safety was to recognize the purity of Paul's motives, to recognize the truth of Paul's message, and to recognize their safety consisted in receiving his, his, his ministry. Um, and so much of Second Corinthians is involved in that very um, problem of Paul's relationships with them and bringing them back to himself. And um, again, the problem is this treasure is in earthen vessels. And uh, that reality is not only accentuates that the, that the greatness of the power may be seen to be of God and not of man, but uh, it also is that people look upon earthen vessels and say, not much here to be impressed about. Not much here to be impressed about with regard to Paul. And um, so they discount him and they distance themselves from him. And Paul's concern is to bring them back. Now, part of what he did, of course, was he sent Titus to them. Chapter 12 speaks of Paul's determination to send Titus because he himself couldn't come to them because he'd already done a painful visit once. He had written a difficult and a grievous letter to them. But in chapter 7 we're going to find out that the sending of Titus actually was a good thing. Titus comes and brings a great report of what happened among the Corinthians and uh, you see something of the fruit of Paul's ministry through Titus and through the letter that he sent to them brought them to repentance. Sometimes when you don't have a relationship forged in persecution and a personal bond, um, sometimes the best thing is just to keep it a distance in prayer, keep it a distance. Maybe someone else will be a better uh, represent, re- representative you can send to people or someone else could be God's voice to them uh, where you... You know, people's ears are just closed to you. That happens in human relations, and sadly it happened in Paul's relationship to the Corinthians. And so Paul's concern in this middle part of the letter is again to uh, call them back to a, a relationship with him in which he's already spoken of the genuineness of his motives, the sincerity of his motives. He's not as the many making merchandise of the word of God. Um, he, and so remember back in chapter 6 and verse 11, He said, we've spoken freely to you. Our mouths are open to you. And not only our mouths, but our hearts as well. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but by your own affections. And then he says, in turn, I call you, speaking to you as children, to widen your hearts also. And he spoke of the problem with being in relationships with people that drag us down, uh, bring us away from Christ, uh, to be yoked, uh, to move in the direction of unbelief and unrighteousness and uh, that which is not uh, part of God's temple, but the idol, the great contrast that he draws between uh, those that uh, 
are of God and those that are not, and not to be unequally yoked together with them. And that doesn't mean just marriages. It means don't let them influence you to lead you away from the truth of the gospel. And then he mentions the promises of the presence of God and um, uh, the promise of God's uh, pleasure with them. And um, uh, he says, since we have these promises, let's cleanse ourselves from the very defilement of flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God in chapter 7 and verse 1. And then in chapter 7 and verse 2, he goes right back to that personal exhortation. Widen your hearts also. Our heart is wide open to you. Your hearts are restricted by your own affections. Now in chapter 7 and verse 2, he goes back to those very same things. Make room in your hearts for us. Widen your hearts. Your hearts are restricted by your own affections. Now, make room in your hearts for us. Again, it's important that they be rightly related to their apostle. Again, I wouldn't say that that's true in regard to normal pastoral relations because, again, we have a cornucopia of options out there in the world today. And the best thing we can do is... Uh, uh, make judgments with regard to, to very, very fallible men who don't have the authority of an apostle, but you recognize that those who are genuine and legit and whom we don't have uh, highly great reasons for suspicion, it's good to be related to uh, those who walk with Christ. It's good to be related to pastors in ministry who are uh, faith, who demonstrated measures of faithfulness. Again, no, not, nothing of perfection anyone can claim. Nothing of apostolic authority that can anyone claim. And those that claim such things are just looking to they're looking to take advantage, I do believe, of the people that they look to assert authority over. And the authority is the Lord's. The authority is the, the apostles. We have that authority in his word. And, uh, but Paul could say this in a personal way. Make room in your hearts for us, your apostles. Your authorized representatives sent by Jesus to establish the faith in the world. And then he, he again uh, claims his sincerity, his uh, lack of evil motives. He says we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of Noah. That's a great thing for a leader to say. You know, the I was reading a book about um, the subject of the ministry, and, and this particular person sought to emphasize the way in which a minister of the gospel in the more ancient world was viewed as one of the professions. Now we tend not to like the idea of professions because that bespeaks what we call professionalism and that is in our day um, equated with monetary compensation. A professional gets paid. An amateur doesn't get paid. Actually when you go back to the original meaning of those words an amateur actually is a lover of the thing. 
You don't need to get paid because you simply loves it. It's not you're amateurish as if you were less professional. It's just that uh, it, it, it describes an attitude of loving something. You love the thing and you hence you pursue it out of love. That's what an amateur is. And a professional is somebody from the other point. The, the amateur from the heart loves the thing and the professional speaks about the thing with measures of competency. In other words, um, profess is to speak, is to speak forth something. And that's what a professional did. Spoke forth something that they had expertise in. And so hence the first three great professions were medicine, law, and ministry. Medicine, law, and ministry. And that bespoke three problems that the human race has, or that people have. And that is problems with the law. You've been arrested. You've been put upon charges with reference to the law. You're sick in your body and you have troubles in your soul. And the professional was the person who has competency, who has the ability to speak to the issue, to speak to the concern of law, to tell you what you need to be doing, to speak for you before the magistrate when you come into court. And so law became a profession to speak forth the on behalf of the client uh, the necessary realities with respect to law that they would have competent representation and then the person who is the profession of medicine the doctor would speak with expertise as to what you to do in the light of the fact that you have this disease you have this physical condition that needs to be remedied and so there is that expertise and so the minister of the gospel is the one that speaks to the issue of, uh, of, of, the, of the concerns of the soul I can speak with expertise and can speak with um, competency and so the person who does that is concerned to help the person he is professing the truth of medicine or law or God's word too there's nothing of self interest in it the whole idea of a professional is you act to, for the good of the person that you serve. The doctor is not looking just to line his pockets and to take uh, great vacations and club med, and the lawyer is not looking to use his position of, polit- of, of, of expertise in law for political advantage and all the rest of the stuff you see in the modern world, which is why the professions have come upon has been given a bad name. But in the ancient world, they wouldn't have had a bad name because there was nothing of self-interest in this. Why am I saying that? Well, Paul's a professional. (laughs) It's not self-interest. He's professing the truth of the gospel for the glory of God and the good of others. He understands what it means to be a man who is a professional in the matter of ministry, to profess the truth of Christ. Professing the truth of Christ, he takes advantage of no one. He corrupts no one. He wrongs no one. It's a horror. We see men in ministry wronging people. Corrupting people. Taking advantage of people. I mean, don't take the stuff that you read in the papers of what's going on in churches in which terrible sins have been discovered of pastors taking advantage of uh, the youth of the church uh, in terms of sexual predation and 
women in the church in terms don't don't say well that's just something that's contrived or that's something we shouldn't be concerned about that's something we have to be concerned about because folks that's the horror show that Paul says should never be should never be that ministers of the gospel are being self-interested and self-serving and looking to uh, achieve their own ends and just use ministry for their own advantage no you serve that's what the purpose of ministry is. Ministry means to serve. Diakonos means serve. Doulos means to serve as a slave. We're servants of the word. We're servants of God. We're servants of God's people. It can't be anything you do that's going to look to wrong people, corrupt people, or to take advantage of people. And Paul says, I have a conscience that's clear. I've done none of these things. Paul says, I don't say this to condemn you. I say this because you're in our hearts. Make room for us in your hearts. Whether you do or not, you're in our hearts. You're in our hearts. And Paul says that you are in our hearts, interestingly enough, to die together and to live together. That seems backward, doesn't it? We... In our day, we would say to somebody, uh, you're in my heart, in life and in death, to live and to die. We put living first. And we're yoked together in common bond of interest to live and to, and to die, in life unto death. But Paul puts death first and life after, because that's what a Christian should think in terms of the fact that together as believers in Jesus, We've died first that we might live. That we are in union with Christ in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. So that death comes first. That we've died to self-interest. We've died to the world. We've died to our ambitions. We've died to using relationships as a means to get, get something up on another person. No, we've died and we live. And the power of the newness of life to live together the glory of God. Paul sees that as his bond with the Corinthians because they're in his hearts to die together with them, to live together with them in the power of the gospel for the glory of God. And then, you know, Paul is using these things and it's almost like a little bullet points he's, he's putting out or just expressions that he's making just to confirm one thing after another after another to express um, his good his goodwill to them his heart of love for them his deep interest in them and so he says I'm acting in great great, great boldness towards you the idea of great boldness is great openness he says open your hearts make room in your hearts we're being open we're being transparent. We're holding nothing back. And he wants them to know that he doesn't hate them. He's not looking to disparage them. He's, he sees them as God's people. They're still the sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're called to be saints with all who call upon his name in every place. That's what the church is by definition. And he views them in that way. And he says, I have great pride in you. I have great pride in you. I'm, I'm hopeful for the best. I'm hopeful that the outcome is going to be good and not bad. That uh, the problems that we have will be worked through 
in a way that will uh, confirm my reason to have pride in you. That the Corinthians are basically, in the midst of all the troubles and problems that you can see in them, they're basically a godly people. They're sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're called to be saints. And we should be hopeful for the people of God to grow and mature and to develop and to be uh, more mature and, and not to look with them upon them with disdain. He says, I have great pride in you. And I'm filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. See, Paul knew what it was to be persecuted. <laughs> and in the light of the persecutions he endures, um, he knows the joy of, 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 of God's presence. He knows that in all of his afflictions, in all of the worst hours, there can be overflowing joy that God gives to his people. And Paul's confident, even in the midst of all of the history he's had with the Corinthians, that something good is on the horizon. Something wonderful he's going to hear about concerning them. And remember, he still has Titus out there. And Titus is gone. Actually, he's, he's writing this, of course, after all this is concluding, concluded. But he, he's going through something of what was his attitude when Titus had not yet come upon the scene. And in verse 5, uh, this needs to be connected with back in chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. Because when you read verse 5 of chapter 7, um, you have to connect it with chapter 2. Chapter 7, verse 5 says, When we came into Macedonia. Well, before Paul came to Macedonia, uh, when he came into Macedonia, he had to cross the Aegean from Asia, and uh, the coastal city in Asia was Troas. So chapter 2 and verse 12, uh, Paul says, when I came to Troas. So this is before he got to Macedonia. He's in Troas. That's on the coast of Asia. Uh, And I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. My spirit was not at rest. Go back to chapter 7 and verse 2, verse 5. He says, for when we came to Macedonia... We left Troas, we came to Macedonia, and here he says, our bodies had no rest. In Troas, our spirit had no rest. Chapter 7 and verse 5, our bodies had no rest. What's going on here? Paul's saying that this is taking a toll on him. Soul and body, inwardly and outwardly, in every respect, the tension that's rising in his soul. What's happening with Corinthians? What happened when Titus was sent to them? I mean, the drama's building. Paul wants to know. Now, back in chapter 2, this spirit that was not at rest was resulted because I did not find my brother Titus there. Again, Titus was sent to the Corinthians. He is going to be Paul's emissary, Paul's representative. He's going to look to patch up things that Paul couldn't, his personal presence wouldn't have been helpful. But Titus he felt could have been helpful in bringing them to um, uh, resolving the issue with regard to this man that had sinned and uh, had need uh, to repent. And uh, Paul's going to speak, or uh, he's already spoken of the fact that that person that caused the pain in uh, chapter 2 and verse 5, 
that there was a punishment that was given by the majority. So he, he knows the result of it. The man had repented. The man um, actually was overly disciplined. And that Paul is concerned that he would be uh, overcome by excessive sorrow. And they need to receive him back. But uh, here when Paul came to Trellis, before he knew all this, before he understood that uh, Titus' mission was successful, the people at Corinth had um, disciplined the man. There was repentance. There was the clearing. There was the resolution of the problem. Uh, Paul was still troubled. He didn't know. He didn't know. And he loved these people so deeply and so well, it, it tore him up within his heart and within his mind. He was distracted. He couldn't minister the gospel at Troas, even though a door was open for me in the Lord. So Paul says, I gotta get out of here. I gotta I gotta take I gotta take board on the ship and uh, go over into Macedonia. So I took leave of them and I went to Macedonia. I mean, I don't think Paul was uh, all that different from you and me because he was an apostle and because he wrote scripture and he was a great church missionary planter. He was a man filled with emotion and, and sensitivity and just, uh, uh, you know, like you and me, a desire to know what's the outcome. Here are these tremendous loose ends. What's going to happen in Corinth? And, and Paul's going to, he, he spoke, I'm not sure, uh, it's later on, he says that upon him is the care of all the churches. Deep anxiety for the churches. And now he's showing that anxiety. He had it at Troas. So he went to Macedonia. The Paul says in 7 verse 5, and even when we came to Macedonia, you know, the, the trip over on, aboard the ship didn't resolve all the issues. Though at Troas there was no rest in his spirit, now our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. And again, all of this, Paul's telling them, is a result of my anxiety for you guys. This is what brought him to this place where he couldn't be effective in ministry. So deep was his love and concern uh, for the Corinthians. Verse 6 tells us how this got resolved. He says, but God, he sees God's hand and what happens here? Is he going to have an ability to effectively minister in Macedonia? And when he couldn't in Troas? Well, the God who comforts the downcast comforted us, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, again, it's a wonderful thought to think that if you take verse 6 out of the context that it's in, that, um, you know, brotherly relationships and uh, our need for human companionship and associations uh, could bring about this sort of result that uh, Paul was just overwhelmed with the joy of seeing the long lost friend. But it wasn't just he saw a long lost friend. Titus was his designated representative to the church at Corinth. And what was at issue here was not just, well just great to see you Titus, I missed you so much and I'm really buoyed in my spirit by your appearance, but he's coming with news about the church. Something much deeper that's going on here. It's the report that Titus had to give to him about the church at Corinth. So that's why he was comforted by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, 
but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. Now, that's Paul's concern. When Titus gets to Corinth, what's going to be his reception there? Is it going to be the sort of painful visit I had? He talks about in chapter 2. Or is it going to be something that uh, he's received with love and he's received um, with a uh, yearning to hear Titus' words in ministry as uh, Titus comes to be Paul's representative to the Corinthians. It really would speak of their attitude towards Paul himself. How Titus' representative would have been received. But he was uh, comforted by you as he told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me. That I rejoice still the more. Again, Paul wrote that grievous letter. He's going to talk about it in the next few verses. That letter that made them grieve for a moment. But yet brought great fruit in its wake uh, because it was only a momentary grief, but it was a full repentance that they had experienced. And so Paul's grievous letter, though it grieved him to write it, evidently by the time Titus got there, it had already begun to bear good fruit. And so they had zeal for Paul, and zeal for me. So I rejoice still the more. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, which I did, made you grieve, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that though I did regret it for a while now I see that letter grieved you though only for a while the actual Greek has for an hour it's the idea of a momentary grief yet a momentary grief for a while but not just a long while it's a brief while As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. That that momentary grief that you experienced, that the reading of my letter put you on a path of action. Put you on a path of actually doing something. So not all grief is bad. If it brings you to do the right thing. If it brings you to take the appropriate action. Now, somebody may say something to you that really hurts your feelings, and yet when you think back when you when you when you uh, uh, when you take it in you realize well maybe they're right maybe they're right my feelings may be hurt but maybe they're right maybe the way I've spoken to my wife is not commendable maybe the way I've treated my children is not commendable maybe the way that I've handled my uh, my workers relationships is not good maybe the way I've followed after things which are injurious to my health and well-being. It's not good. And though it hurts when somebody comes with a word of rebuke or reproof or correction or exhortation, yet maybe they're right. And that's what the Corinthians came to understand and consider. And so they were grieved into repentance. They were grieved into change. They were grieved into turning. He says, you felt a godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. I mean, you have some hurt feelings, but those hurt feelings were healed. 
and they were healed quickly. But you did the right thing. You were led on a path of godly repentance rooted in godly grief. And then he expounds upon that aspect of godly grief that he saw in the Corinthians in verse 10. He says, for godly grief. There's a godly grief. There's an ungodly grief. You think of Judas going out and weeping bitterly. Now he had bitter tears at what he'd done because he had a guilty conscience. But there was no resolve to return or to repent or to look to Jesus with some measure of hope, of pardon. He was beyond hope in his own estimation and he had no hope in the Lord. And he went out and he committed suicide. When when Peter denied Jesus and Jesus looked upon him, he also wept and he wept bitterly. But it was not a hopeless weeping. It was a weeping that brought him pardon and brought him to turn back to Jesus so that the one who had been one who had denied him in a moment of confusion and in a moment of failing to understand what the true purpose of Christ was in coming into the world he, he couldn't conceive of why Jesus willingly would be giving himself over to his captives it didn't fit in with his eschatological scheme it didn't fit in with his understanding of Messiah's coming and working in the world and uh, but yet, once he had, was clear on the purpose of Jesus coming and the meaning of his death, there was no one who was a more fulsome and wholehearted proclaimer of Jesus, confessor of Jesus. It's godly grief that is not without hope. It produces a repentance that leads to salvation. And that salvation produces no regrets we don't look back and then say I regret, I regret the day that I repented I regret the day that my heart was heavy with the burden of my sins I regret the day that I felt deeply the reality of my rebellion against the Lord and I had hurt feelings as a result and uh, I wish I hadn't experienced that I say thank you Lord that I did experience that thank you Lord that you brought me to see myself that you brought me to see the reality of who I am. I don't regret that at all. Worldly grief produces death. This is only concerned about yourself, your image. It's not concerned about God and His glory. But the repentance of the Corinthians was that godly grief that led to repentance, that led to salvation, and it produced in them what Paul calls earnestness earnestness a resolute intent to clear oneself before God to make the matters right an intention to deal with the issue that had separated them from their apostle and that had dishonored God and then along with this earnestness there was an eagerness to clear yourself indignation against the sin and even the sinner who had done the things that were done that hurt the congregation fear, longing, zeal 
punishment. They brought discipline, excessive discipline. Chapter 2 tells us they went overboard. Paul had to call them back and to receive the man back. Uh, let's see, be overcome with sorrow. But uh, at every point, he says, you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And not that they hadn't sinned, but that they were clear with reference to the matter. We can put the matter to rest. We can put it away. This doesn't have to come and enter in in the future to Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. Which is really what forgiveness does. It puts the issue away. It buries it. It's as if it didn't happen. Now, it did happen. You know, so we don't ever think that uh, there aren't lessons to be learned from the fact that they went through this. There always are lessons to be learned, caution flags to put up. There's always perhaps changes that need to be made. But yet, in terms of how we move ahead in the future, there's nothing that personally is in the way. So Paul could speak of this even in terms of you proved yourself innocent in the matter. There's nothing any longer to bring up. Again, I don't think it's usually we don't think of innocence in the way of uh, we think of innocence. Well, it is, it is a legal concept. It's that the judge finds nothing that's guiltworthy here, and so when you wrestle through these matters like this, and there's repentance and there's reconciliation, it's as if the matter has not even occurred. There's nothing again that stands in the way of renewed commitment and fellowship and walking together. Uh, in the Lord. And so Paul says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, at least not mostly for the sake of the one that did the wrong, that man who was disciplined in chapter 2, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, and that's Paul. Paul was the one that suffered the wrong. And you know, again, Paul's not even bringing up names. He's just speaking of them as that person suffered this, that person that suffered that. No need to go into details. No need to rehash the matter or even to bring up their names. But uh, I wrote to you that um, in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Again, Paul is concerned about their relationship with him. That the problem that happened with the painful visit and the man who did whatever he did to Paul that ought to have been addressed by the leadership and was not addressed by the leadership and that brought this division and Paul had to leave the Titus had to go and he had to write a letter to them about and Titus had to go to see well, what was the result of all of that um, Paul says my motive in all of this was our relationship our personal relationship and not only that um, you would deal with the matter with earnestness but uh, it's your earnestness for us. It's not just, well, it's a man that did something that they shouldn't all have done, and we need to correct it, we need to discipline him. But uh, this involved their apostle. And this involved the church's relationship to their apostle. And their relationship to their apostle really impinged upon the fact that they have, um, have Jesus authorized representative as their teacher that excluded other teachers that would bring in different Jesus that would bring a different gospel that would bring a different message um, this was their safety that was involved 
and that their safety in trusting their apostle and having this relationship to their apostle would not only be um, something that they would reveal, but they would reveal to themselves. We're really doing this because um, it has to be addressed because um, people need to know that we're a church of Christ under apostolic authority, under apostolic leadership. And Paul as an apostle says, therefore we are comforted. Again, we wouldn't write this way today because we don't have apostles. And we think that anybody who would write this way to people is a little bit filled with themselves. But no, Paul's not filled with himself at all. He's filled with his concern for the church. And he's filled with the concern for the church that will be um, realized in terms of good or evil, in terms of their relationship to him as their authorized apostle who Jesus sent for the purposes of their establishment and their maturity and their well-being in the gospel but so that Paul doesn't conclude just with the thought well this is personal as if this was something that has involved him alone he says besides this besides our own comfort we rejoice still the more at the joy of Titus it's not just me it's the apostolic grouping of servants who come in Christ's name authorized by Christ's um, sending um, Titus enters into this as well Paul's not just saying me only no I'm but a part of uh, so, of a group of apostolic representatives that included Titus that included Timothy that included others his spirit has been refreshed by you all for whatever boasts I made to him about you. And again, remember Paul says um, back in um, yeah, back in verse 4, he says, I have great pride in you. I have great pride in you. I boasted about you. Um, again, we don't know the exact content of Paul's boasting uh, with respect to Titus, but even when Titus may have thought all was lost, Paul would say, no, no, no. I have ultimately great hope that uh, they will get things right. I do believe that they do belong to the Lord. And there will be an, an ultimate clearing of themselves. There will be an ultimate repentance from these things. And so in the fact that I did make this boast to Titus as I sent them along to you, uh, I was not put to shame. Which is everything we said to you was true, so our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So again, this is a letter that, uh, you know, you might think because the situation in Corinth was so specific to the man that offended and uh, his relationship to Paul whom he offended and the church and their relationship to their apostle we don't have direct parallels today yet the the climate of transparency is so vitally important the climate of having confidence in one another is something I think of is of vital importance that we don't have a sense that uh, Oh, we're just 
bunch of hypocrites and we dwell in the midst of a people who are hypocrites. You know, Isaiah could say, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We shouldn't think that about the church because we have had the coal of the burning of forgiveness applied to us through the blood of Christ and God has declared us forgiven and he's given us of his spirit and we're part of the genuine people of God and we should have confidence in one another and we should have pride in one another and we should think the best of one another and not the worst if there was any church that Paul could have had very hard and bitter thoughts towards it would be this church and yet Paul indicates clearly that no such thought ever came into his mind that he was a true professional in that sense competent and able to speak the truth of God into that church's situation in a way that was not concerned with himself but was concerned with their good and any involvement he had about himself was in the context of a larger group of people who were professionals in serving the church and in whom it was in the best interest of the church to receive which is not a good thing if you Go to the doctor who's competent to make a diagnosis and he's looked at all the tests and he's come to the conclusion and you say, well, what does he know? I know better. I'll go on the internet and figure it all out on my own. Now, there are good things you can find out on the internet that maybe you can tell a doctor about, but nonetheless, for the most part, you go to the doctor because he's the competent one, capable of making wise decisions and making wise assessments. And your health is really based upon your ability to trust him right if you don't trust him you're gonna who then do you trust you might fall in the hands of some quack practitioner who doesn't know what the world he's doing and uh, uh, for whatever reasons because he's flattered you you might think he's better able to deal with your health than a a really qualified professional or you might think well I don't need uh, a really capable lawyer who's telling me the truth about my situation before the law I'll go find somebody that'll tell me what I want to hear. I'll represent myself. And of course, the person who represents himself, you know, is the one who has the fool for a client. Well, you know, you can end up in prison if you think that a professional attorney who's capable and competent and able really can't be trusted, but you should look for some quack practitioner, practitioner you can end up sick I mean even even you can end up dead if you don't listen to the counsel of wise physicians and so it is when you don't listen to the counsel of a capable apostle a genuine apostle of Jesus and are listening then to the voices of false apostles and false teachers who ultimately will lead you astray well I hope that makes sense as to the situation I think is prevailing there at Corinth and the reason why Paul wrote this letter and I hope it will be helpful to you when you read the letter on your own we just have uh, that section that comes up about the offering to take up next and then some final words about Paul's interactions with uh, the church particularly in the light of those false teachers that concludes uh, the letter in the Uh, later sections in chapter 10 to chapter 13. But we've gotten through the basic body of the letter in terms of Paul's concerns with the church and I hope it's clear and I hope it's helpful and I hope uh, 2 Corinthians will be a little bit more understandable 
when you read it in the future. So let's pray together, giving God thanks. Father, we're thankful for this time in this section of 2 Corinthians, and we pray that you'd help us to think upon these things, to consider them, uh, to read the letter with a greater care and a greater uh, concern to um, really decode the, the things that are happening uh, with Paul and the Corinthian church. We don't know everything in the detail, but the Lord, in the main, we, we, we can get a real glimpse of uh, the relationships that uh, the church had with its leaders and truly make a proper application to our own times, our own situation. Uh, that, Lord, we would learn to trust capable, able leaders and desire it. That, Lord, as uh, we think of our own assembly, as we think of our future, that, Lord, you would settle in, in among us uh, capable leadership for the future of this church and that you would be pleased to give us a yearning to see you raise up capable and able people uh, to lead the church in generations to come. So we look to you to hear our prayers. We look to you to bless us as we greet one another this morning, to bless us as we enter into your worship in the morning hour. We'd ask you to hear us as we come to you in Jesus' name.